What's up, Story Geeks? It's Jay. And Daryl. On today's show, we're going to dig deeper into Ready Player One, asking where does this film fit in Steven Spielberg's legendary canon? What has actually happened to Halliday at the end of Ready Player One? And what were his motivations throughout the film? And also, why do our stories spend so much time questioning escapism and virtual worlds versus the real world? That's right. And joining us on today's show, we have returning guest and big Steven Spielberg fan, Helen O'Hara from the Empire Podcast. Uh, We got the chance to talk to Helen before previously about Captain America. And it's so exciting to have her back on the show, especially to talk about Spielberg, which is so near and dear to her heart. Absolutely. And we'd also love to talk to you about Spielberg. So please share your thoughts on Ready Player One or any of Steven Spielberg's movies in the Story Geeks Facebook group. The link to our Facebook group is in the show notes. Also, don't miss our aftercast. Daryl and I dig a little deeper into human consciousness and how it relates to our favorite stories. We also talk about our favorite movies that have virtual worlds. And be sure you don't miss our upcoming shows. Next week, we're going to be doing a special Dig Deeper episode into the concept of anti-heroes. That's the tie into Venom. And then if you want to go back a week and check out what we've been doing, we did a really fun episode where we made Green Lantern better with Scott Nicewander from NerdSync. That episode is super fun. And if you're not a patron, let me just go ahead and throw out a quick little plug here to subscribe to Patreon because that aftercast was really fun too. Yeah, that aftercast was probably one of my favorite aftercasts of all time. Super, super thankful that Scott was able to join us for that one too. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Let's dig deeper into Ready Player One. All right. First thing we want to do is welcome our very exciting guest today. Returning to the show, we're so excited to have her back, is Helen O'Hara from the Empire Podcast. Welcome, Helen. Hello. How are you doing? We are doing great. Yeah, doing pretty good. So I just finished, well, not finished, I'm still listening to it, but I was listening to your guys' live podcast from yesterday, so. Wait, has Chris put that up already? That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And it's really funny. Oh, good. I I saw that that James had posted that they were going to have to edit a bunch of it out, and then someone was saying, like, no, just leave it all in. I'm like, ah, just leave it all in. We won't hear it all. I I literally got a message from Chris this morning going, you know that bit we thought we might edit out? I'm leaving it in. It's funny, and I don't think we'll get complaints. So. I think I might know which part that is. There's some beeps, but it seems like everything's there, so. Fingers crossed. Exactly. Well, we are here to talk about uh, Ready Player One today. Um, really quickly before we do that, Helen, just go ahead and let everybody know where they can find the Empire Podcast and where they can find you and all that good stuff. Right. So I am on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara. Um, I'm the editor at large for Empire, which means I'm, I'm kind of a minister with our portfolio. I kind of do stuff there and then go off and do, do other things. So, um, uh, But a lot of my writing is in Empire. You can find it at Empire Magazine in I think big Barnes and Noble in the States, right? And, yep. uh, and then also uh, we're online, empireonline.com. And that's where you'll find links to our podcast, which is weekly. We discuss um, the, the big new movies every week. And then we do spoiler specials for the really big movies whenever those come out. So, uh, and those are always quite a lot of fun. And some of them are six hours long. And <laughs> just that one. Just that one is six hours long. But in fairness, that's Chris McQuarrie's fault and not uh, ours. So He's so fascinating, though. He's it's amazing. So to listen to. He's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Daryl told me about it. He told me about the first one. 
Yeah. yeah. And I go, okay, well, I'll listen to that someday. And then the second one came out, and I started listening to it. And I'm like, now I'm enthralled. Now yeah. I have to go back and listen to the other <laughs> one. Go back and listen to Rogue Nation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have never had um, – I, I keep getting compliments from people we interview on that one. If they've listened to the podcast, that's the one that all the filmmakers talk about. So, Because ah, um, I think they're fascinated that someone was that honest about the process. Totally. And again, this is credit to Chris McQuarrie and not to us. So I, I feel For like sure. I can say that without being without being immodest. Yeah. It's like <laughs> listening to the best director's commentary there is. It's Yeah. He's, it's cool. he's, yeah. Uh, he's pretty awesome. Super cool. Okay. Well, let's talk about Ready Player One. So, yeah. Um, first of all, let's just take a quick pulse on this and see how we feel about Ready Player One, how we think it holds up against the rest of Spielberg's work. I think we have some differing opinions here. So, Helen, why don't you kick us off on that one? Okay, well, I'm a huge Spielberg fan. Huge. Yes. Uh, and indeed, Spielberg apologist. I would put AI among my top films without qualification. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I was trying to do that, you know, five films that sum you up as a person thing that was going around Twitter <laughs> recently. <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually publish mine, but Lincoln, I find myself writing Lincoln, and I don't even quite understand why, but, you know, I love that film. And um, and obviously, like, all the old amazing ones, all the old undisputed classics I'm, I'm a huge fan of. Um, sure. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Spielberg fangirl. I want to say this because I, I didn't love Ready Player One. I didn't mind it, and I thought it was a major step up from the book, um, but it is not among my top. 20 Spielbergs. He's made more than 20 films, I feel like, right? Yeah, he's made Oh, more. for sure. Yeah. So, In fact, uh, I'm so on feel... IMDb and I can tell you how many he's directed. <laughs> Thank you. I'll... His producer list is so long and stuff. 58, oh, 58 wow. films he's directed. Whoa. Wow. That's, that must include TV that. as well. Probably, yeah, yeah and maybe yeah. some shorts early in yeah. the career okay. or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Cool. But yeah. Jay, what do you think, Jay? Where does this one hold up? Uh, so, I. Actually, I'm going to kind of mirror what Helen just said because I was a little disappointed in the film. My exposure to Ready Player One, so just to give you guys a feel for what how I came upon this, um, I started listening to some friends of ours uh, do the Network 1901 podcast, and they do a series, or they did a series called Explain This Book to Me, where if you didn't want to read the book, like someone would explain it to you. It's like that Cliff Notes <laughs> version of fiction. That sounds It's a really awesome. brilliant idea. Yeah, it's awesome. It was really cool. But they were explaining it so well that I'm like, oh, I have to read this. This sounds awesome. So I got the audio book, um, the Will Wheaton audio book, where he, he narrates the entire thing. Will Wheaton reads it? Will yeah, Will Wheaton oh, reads wow. it. Yeah, it's super meta because he's, he's like in it, mentioning in it. himself. Yeah. yeah, he's like mentioning himself <laughs> as he reads. It was really cool. Um, so shout out to Network nineteen oh one and Shannon and Dale there. But um, I thought that the movie was just okay because the book is very good. I, I like the book is almost borderline great, not quite because there's some. I think that I have some issues with that. Um, but I think that the the movie. The, the movie cannot handle the characters and the plot as well as the film does because there's so much packed into the book. Mm. So automatically you have to remove a lot, and I actually don't know if enough was removed in the movie to make it a little bit more cohesive. So, um, But this did this question did. I want to get your guys' take on this because I had this moment where I, I went, what? Is, is this a problem with Spielberg adaptations? Which is the dumbest question of all time. <laughs> and then, so I look up like Spielberg movies based on books. I'm like, oh, no, that's not a problem at all. Like, <laughs> really not. <laughs> There's an amazing catalog. I mean, <laughs> of Jurassic things that he's Park, done. Schindler's yeah. List. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Some of my favorite ones. So that was kind of me being an idiot. Uh, but I do feel like 
I don't know. I want to get your guys' take on this. Mm. Um, I felt like Spielberg, who normally challenges himself with the story and the storytelling component, it almost felt more like he was challenging himself with this film in relation to visually how to go dive into this the, all these geek references and i feel like that the story suffered because of it but i don't know what's your take on that i think that's fair yeah i i would agree with that i think that he um i think he find it really difficult i think he's on record as saying he found this quite an exhausting process just because mm. of the sheer scale and number of the effects involved um and and that's why he sort of went off and did the post as a palate cleanser because that's the kind of thing he does you know, let's work with meryl streep and tom hanks just as a just as a little entre course thing you know it'll be fine <laughs> um but uh but yeah it, it's it, there's a huge info dump in the first 10 15 minutes of the film like the the exposition there is so heavy um because he's trying to establish the world so he can get that out of the way and concentrate on the characters but there's still so much more world building to be done yeah that i don't think he ever really concentrates on the characters as much as he wants to never mind as much as we want him to as an audience yeah that's a great so, point yeah. yeah i think that's true i'm i might my regard for this film might be a little bit higher than your guys okay but not as high as it was after my first viewing. So the first time I saw it, I thought in the theater, I thought that was amazing. That mm. was like not the best Spielberg film I'd ever seen, mm. but amazing. And now after watching it a second time, I'm like, okay, it's just, it's just really good. Yeah. It's yeah. not amazing. It's, uh, okay. it's really good. So now, Helen, have you read the book? I've read the book. Yep, I read the book before okay. the movie because I thought it would be the kind of thing that I would like, which is not entirely the case. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> We'll get to that. But um, uh, I, I actually had the slightly opposite opinion. I, I went in and, and when I first saw the movie, I was a little bit more disappointed. And second time around, I was actually in America. I went to the Cinerama Dome uh, oh. in L.A., which had been recommended as one of the great movie theaters. And it was amazing. Um, and I saw it there and I was more impressed with it second time around. I think some of the maybe just because I'd taken on board all of the kind of just that information then I was able to yeah. maybe sit back and enjoy it a bit more, but um, you, but I liked it the better. Onslaught. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'd still, I mean, I, for me, it would be like an Empire terminology. We we do stars out of five. For me, right. it would be a, a solid three, but but definitely no more Which than that. Which is a recommendation. Which is a recommendation. You know, we are sitting about I don't know, maybe twenty five miles. Or maybe thirty-five miles, somewhere in that range, from the Cinerama Dome. Oh, cool! And I've, I've, I've never, never even heard me of neither. it. Me <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to go to that. That sounds awesome. It it's yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good theater. It was awesome. Cool. It often feels like people that don't live in California are more familiar <laughs> with Los Angeles than we are. Yeah. Well, I have <laughs> to say that this was due to a screenwriter a friend of mine. He, he asked me for recommendations when he came to London last year. So I then, when I was going to L.A., I was like, right, you need to pay back time. You know, <laughs> come on, where do I need to go? And that was one of – that and the Egyptian were, were two of his recommendations. Okay, we know that one. Yeah, yeah the Egyptian <laughs> was, was magic. I wanted to move to L.A. because of the Egyptian. It's, a, it's an amazing place. That's cool. Awesome. Well, before we get into the really deep stuff, um, just for fun, what were some of your guys' favorite pop culture references in the film? <laughs> Obviously, there were a ton. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> there were quite a few. Uh, I liked King Kong. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, not so much because it was a nerdy reference, just because I thought it was really well done. Um, and I guess the Akira bike was pretty cool. 
Mm. I thought that was good. For yeah. sure. And the Iron Giant. Sorry, I'm forgetting. Yeah. Yeah, I looked up all like all the Easter eggs that you might have missed, right? Like, and it's like this giant page of stuff that was like, oh yeah, if you pause the movie at this point, you can see in the background, yeah. you know. Um, and honestly, none of the Easter eggs were all that impressive to me. What was impressive to me is the scene wherein they they film it like The Shining is yeah. just gorgeous. And and I don't even like The Shining, so it's not really my t- thing. But I'm like, if you're gonna do this, this is like the way to do this yeah this it is, was amazing yeah this is outstanding mm. um the iron giant like helen said that is beautifully rendered like it it the way that it is visually on screen is phenomenal so yeah, i kind of makes like you that. wish the original movie looked like that <laughs> <laughs> no but all, all, the other thing about the iron giant is of course putting him in there instantly gives you some heart and some emotion because yeah. i cannot see that like a picture, a drawing of that character without getting a little bit emotional and thinking about the word Superman and just being a bit like, oh my God. Yeah. Um, so uh, so it, it's kind of a cheat in a way because I feel like it gives you instant like emotion in a film that maybe doesn't always earn it quite so well. You know, that's probably, I didn't realize this until you just said that, but that's probably why both the book and the film in my mind can't be considered great because the book itself relies so much on your love of the stuff that it's talking about that it can kind of get away with things that maybe it shouldn't be able to get away with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting because you're, you're hitting on something that I was thinking as I was listening to um, the most recent version of the ranking that you guys did on the Star Trek films. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you commented on how the reason you love the original cast films is because even if you haven't seen the original, I think you said this, Helen, even if you hadn't seen the original series, you still know who those people are Yeah, Yeah. and you have that history. And so you feel that gravity. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, I'm like, well, where do, where do we land on that? Like, is it better for a film to have nothing like that to pull on and to still be great? Or is it better for a film to be great because it has all this other stuff it can pull into it and it can kind of make a big conglomerate of it for you? So I don't know. I don't know if one is more. Mm. I mean, I more, think it's in some ways yeah. more. Imp- I think it's more impressive if you can do it from scratch in one movie. And I think there are movies and, and characters who are just sort of instantly lovable that way. I mean, I'm thinking about yeah. something like the five minute scene between Hiccup and Toothless in How to Train Your Dragon. Oh yeah. Um, and it's wordless pretty much, and it's just them sort of starting to form that connection. Uh, but by the end of that scene, you would die for either of those two. You know. Um, having known nothing about them before. <laughs> uh, and, and I think there are those characters in film, and um, Baymax maybe in Big, Big Hero 6, you know, mm. instantly lovable. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it is impressive when you can do it off the bat, but yeah, if, if you're going to use existing characters, this is one of my bugbears that I guess I keep coming back to in lots of different uh, stories, you have to tap into the thing that makes them what they are. So if you're going to tell a Superman story, it has to tap into the essence of Superman hmm. or you've failed on many, many levels. Yeah. Basically. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that's really interesting to me is as a writer, I frequently do not want to go tell another story with the same characters in it because it's so hard to take a character through two arcs. It can mm. be done, but it's very, very difficult. You have to be like, yeah. well, their fatal flaw is this in the mm. first you know work of art well what's their fatal flaw going to be in the second because 
I don't know that they, you know what I mean? Like, it's just this weird, it's very strange. It's an odd yeah. thing to try and do. That's why you get Shrek wanting to be alone and then realizing that people are important in every single Shrek film. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and actually, that's very true. Like, like real people are oftentimes either more or less interesting than characters, depending on how you want to how do you want to look at it. But because real people struggle with the same things most of the time, long portions of their life. So the mm. character arc is not like this, well, this one month adventure happens and the guy realize, you know, Shrek <laughs> realizes that people matter, you know, like, no, it's like, you know, 30 years of you trying to figure out that people matter. <laughs> it's like, ah, that's a pretty boring film at that point. Um, but, uh, so I think what's really frustrating is that now that basically marketers have determined that people love the characters and they fall in love with the characters. It's like, keep turning stuff out with those same characters. Yeah. And it was no more frustrating than in the TV series Heroes because the TV series oh. Heroes was supposed to reboot every season with a new character list. Yeah. And the first um, season I loved and the yeah. second season was awful. So <laughs> and it bad. just kept going downhill. Yeah. And uh, that's a good example of it. It's like, okay, those characters all went through their arcs and now you're bringing them back and now they now it doesn't even seem like Peter Petrelli anymore. He's some other dude yeah. like or he's or you're rehashing the same thing he went through before. Yeah. <laughs> that's just so it's a good I think it's a good question but I think nostalgia can in that in that context you can use it in positive ways mm. but you can also use it as a means by which to what was the movie recent Okay so uh Jurassic World the first one cuz uh -huh. I haven't seen Fallen yeah. Kingdom it okay. uses all of those tropes like oh we're going to make you feel all of this nostalgia for things that you really shouldn't feel it for yeah. but we did a great <laughs> movie like yeah. you know 20 years ago or whatever it was the jeep and the t-shirt and all that yeah, stuff exactly exactly so i just think it's not fair it's not fair yeah. sometimes i yeah. think the, the, i think exactly you're exactly right i think the difference in good and bad nostalgia is the difference between the wrath of khan and into darkness for example because mm. one is uh, one is using a pre-existing relationship and pre-existing characters to do something that makes you feel like still I'm not over. And the other one is riffing on that and trying to tap <laughs> yeah. into that emotion without actually bringing anything to the table and without earning the right in the first place. Yeah, um, uh, that's really good. But anyway, that's a whole other story. My problems with Into Darkness, so we should probably not talk about that <laughs> ever again. It looks like we have a Make It Better Into Darkness episode. In our yeah, yeah, Helen. yeah, yeah. That is another version of we. We also do these episodes called Make It Better, <laughs> where we take a film and like try and tweak it. So that might be yeah. what we have to do next. Yeah. There's a long list of issues with that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, real quick before I go into the deep question, my favorite pop culture reference. It was yep. actually not a visual one. It was an audio one. Oh. And there's several points in the film where you hear Back to the Future music. Oh, yeah. That's my mm, favorite. I love that. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. I just get the instant Back to the Future sort of adventurous tension in my chest when I hear that. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. You know. I, the other two I had on my list were also the DeLorean and the Zemeckis Cube. Yeah. yeah those yeah, Zemeckis yeah. Cube. That was cute. I, I think that's – but see, that's where it's not fair because I instantly am like, I love – Back to the Future. I'm so yeah. glad you brought it up. You know what I mean? Like it's just well, not. He fair. knew that, and it's very heavily featured. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we continue, we want to let you guys know about all the additional stuff you can find over at thestorygeeks.com. You can find our latest YouTube videos, Patreon posts, additional content written by our blogger Ashley Pauls. Be sure to check out her Women of Star Wars series that's been going on there. It's fantastic. 
We have Make It Better on Green Lantern with Scott Nicewander. We talked about that already. We have Leia's character journey with Alexis Torres. And we have our top five time travel movies with Mike Faber and Mike Gordon from ESO. Whole bunch of great stuff and some more great stuff coming up as well. So you can find all of that at thestorygeeks.com. Not to mention our podcast with Helen O'Hara on Captain America's character journey. That's right. Which was awesome. Uh, We'd also love it if you would support us. And there are three ways to do that. You can support us monthly through our Patreon page. Patreon is a website that allows fans like you to support creators like us. When you support the show for as little as $2 a month, although most people do it for $3 a month. But if you support us for $2 a month, you get access to our aftercasts. Our aftercast is really fun this week. We talk about human consciousness, and we also talk about our favorite movies with virtual worlds. So if you want to support us on Patreon, which we hope you do, please go to the show notes and click on the Patreon link, patreon.com slash thestorygeeks, and then choose a reward tier, and we will hopefully benefit you with additional content <laughs> finally if you're like me and you're a big theme park fan check out modernmouseboutique.com modern mouse boutique sells geek fashion accessories and they're famous for having some of the highest quality mouse ears you can buy if you're planning a trip to a theme park or if you're just a geek fan in general check out modernmouseboutique.com our friends angie and josh are awesome people and if you use promo code storygeeks that's all one word storygeeks no spaces use promo code storygeeks and get 10% off your next order. Links to our Patreon page and Modern Mouse Boutique can all be found in the show notes or on our blog at storygeeks.com. Thanks for letting us interrupt. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, let's go deep. So sure. um, Wade says, these days reality is a bummer. Everyone's looking for a way to escape and that people have stopped trying to fix problems and are just trying to outlive them. So I'm wondering how far do you think we are from that degree of escapism in real life? What do you think, Helen? <laughs> I think we're not as far as we'd like to be. Yeah. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, I think there's there's an element of uh, of absolute escapism uh, that is uh, we need right now. I, I don't think it's always a bad thing. I'm I'm very much in favor of escapism as a concept. I am. I genuinely believe it's one of the ways that film is important and that it can help people and it can you know just just taking you out of your own head for two hours can be a gift and it's a really important one um but at the same time i think it is probably bad if it takes over your life and and i have i I think i see a lot of it in my country here in the uk um i'll be honest like this is me being political brexit's going to be an absolute nightmarish disaster and mm-hmm. everyone's hoping that something will happen. I think we're all having it with the environment. I think the whole world is having it. You talk to lots mm-hmm. of very intelligent, very well-educated people about the environment, and they say, well, somebody's going to figure something out. And it's like, well, <laughs> That's maybe. how we felt before Trump got elected. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? And, you know, He's not going to win. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel like there's there's a lot of this kind of wishful thinking of, well, someone will sort it out. I don't have to do anything. Just please let me not think about it because I can't take it. Um, and and it, that is a valid, I don't want to make it sound like that's not a valid response. That is a valid response. Self-care is important and people shouldn't feel obliged to do stuff if it you know worsens their mental health or whatever. But, um, but at the same time, the, the escapist urge is strong and we now have more means than we've had in the past we're not quite at the oasis level yet but we're not that far off yeah um so yeah i think i think it's definitely got real world parallels and deliberately so uh, you know i I credit him with uh, both spielberg and eric with that um so yeah definitely yeah yeah i was reflecting on this question i'm like 
has reality ever not been a bummer? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, like, uh, it, it seems like I think that there's a there's an assumption sometimes that we well okay because a couple things are happening probably because of social media too and all the facts mm. that we see like everyone else is posting the best things in their life yeah it's sort of like well yeah then my life must be a bummer because I'm taking out the trash <laughs> and that person's in Hawaii you know yeah. what I mean like um but but last week that person wasn't posting and they spent the whole week tra- taking out the trash. Maybe <laughs> exactly <laughs> right, exactly right. And this is kind of how it works. It's like we're all just like enthralled by the the thought that escapism could be a real thing. Whereas in the past maybe it. And I agree with Helen. Escapism is not necessarily inherently a problem. It's it's if you choose it all the time, mm. consistently, yeah. right? Like, because right. um, I mean we've seen this in other films. We see this in. I watched my wife and I watched Wally. The other mm-hmm. night, oh. totally about escapism, right? Like yeah. the entire human race is escaping. Um, the Matrix is a, an interesting one because it's about escapism, but it's also about because you have the character in the Matrix. I can't remember his name, um, but he's the guy that chooses the Matrix over reality because he's like, Joe why Holmes. would I? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. He's like, I, I don't care if I don't care if this steak isn't real. It tastes amazing, right? Cipher. Cipher. Yeah, yeah, that's yes, it. Yeah. Yep. Good, good pickup. Yeah. Um, so the the other question that I think is is interesting that I that I'm not sure that we can that we're <laughs> this is getting really crazy deep but you'd also have to ask yourself what is reality because there are certain people out there that might tell you well reality is what you make of it and if you're making these like the oasis for example you're making yeah. an alternate version of reality but your brain in the oasis it's real for for them and so then it's kind of a question of like well which reality should you choose and why um, now, I'm not yeah. saying I believe that, but I just think that there's people who would make that argument. But th- that, that is also true within the terms of... The, so there's a couple of levels of that. First of all, it's true within the terms of the book and the film in the sense yes. that you can learn a living in the Oasis. You can you go to school in the Oasis. You earn money in the Oasis, and that's you know that matters in the real world. That has feedback to the real world. Um, so it's true in, in that sense. Yes. Um, but also, obviously, there's all these kind of, you know... theories about how we build our own reality and how people who are uh, you know you read these articles about people who are resilient and it's not that they have had less bad stuff happen to them in their lives um, that gives them this outlook that enables them to carry on in awful circumstances it's that they have taught themselves to deal with it in a certain way so they have built their own reality Um, and again that's obviously it can be an incredibly powerful and positive thing Um, I think for Wade even I think it's it's not just escape in the oasis it is a way of taking control a way of asserting himself a way of finding himself as a personality and a person uh, in a way that he maybe doesn't have room to in the real world Um, I think that's probably true of a lot of us kind of geeks really is that we sort of you know chime with these characters in fiction in a way that we sometimes have trouble with in the real world that is a great point. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely true. I just, I, I love that 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 line of thinking, um, and I do think that like oh, the, the other question too is right. Like, the world can be a huge bummer. In fact, oftentimes <laughs> you'll find that it is a is it, it, it that's consistently the case. Um, and I wonder too if it's if if we said to ourselves like, well, why wouldn't we want to build one that would mm. be better than this one right like yeah. it's at least something that you could, should consider for a second i think that the the interesting conclusion though is that all of these films tell us 
that the real world, despite its problems, is still better. Like they all come to the mm. same conclusion. It's yeah. almost like it's almost like we are all are sitting here going like, yeah, we know we can't build a better one, which is <laughs> weird because maybe we could, but yeah. it's just weird that we don't think that. And so some of that, I'm wondering if if like, I wonder if when we experience problems and when life is a bummer it actually give us gives us different perspectives that though they are not maybe you know uh chemically a dopamine hit after we've experienced them it gives us such a new perspective on life uh on things that are bigger than life mm -hmm. that to choose escapism always would never give us those insights would never give us the ability to see the world in those ways and therefore we have to have a world that's that's a bummer and if we were to build a perfect world that isn't a bummer we'd have to work in things that were a bummer just to teach ourselves to recognize <laughs> that there's other ways of viewing the world i don't know that's As, that's just that's what the robots realized in the matrix right they they tried to create a perfect utopia for humanity and humanity kept going this doesn't seem right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. right yeah exactly right so i don't i don't know i'm not i'm not uh, i don't have any of the right degrees or experience to say <laughs> what the, what all this means but it feels like that i think that the storytellers are coming to the conclusion that living in the real world is valuable. And I think mm -hmm. the book actually does a really good job of explaining that it's not that escaping to the Oasis is a problem. Because they actually, yeah. like, halfway through the book, they basically they basically state, like, the Oasis is great. But then at the end of the book, they also state, yeah, so is, so is the real world. And so there's this, like, there's this duality that seems like what we're supposed to embrace as opposed to uh, yeah. just a complete rejection of escapism or a complete acceptance of it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, so literally just on TV, I just turned it off to, to do this. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was on and I just saw uh. the mirror of Erised scene. Um, and Dumbledore saying it does not do to dwell in dreams and forget to live. So it's exactly the same point in, in Harry Potter as well. You've got, to, you've got to engage with the world and you can't completely at least turn your back on it even for you know someone who's built an entire wizarding world for herself to live in <laughs> and as normal dumbledore has said it way better and way more concisely than i could have <laughs> you know he's he's had 150 years of practice or whatever you know true true and he's a wizard you're not a wizard and he's yeah, a wizard. Yeah. well is isn't he are we yeah. sure oh, oh. i'm pretty point. sure but I, <laughs> <laughs> um not to harp on it too much, but I almost kind of feel like we have reached this degree of escapism. Now, it's not for different reasons, though. Like, we don't have something as advanced as the Oasis. We don't have that completely immersive experience. But we have social media. We have Twitter. We have Facebook. We have Instagram, like you were talking about before. And depending on where you are in the world, some places really are suffering from this much breakdown and deterioration. True. Yeah, that's true. In the yeah. States, we're not. And... I would, I think, right in the UK, you guys aren't either. I'm thinking of like yeah. horrific stuff. But Those personally, some, some places in the states, though, that's true. Like the, yeah, yeah. That's you true. don't want to be there. But personally, you can be experiencing that. You can have a health issue. You can have oh. a terrible family situation. Absolutely. You can have a terrible job that's mistreating you. You can be abused. Yeah. So many different things. Yeah. So it may not be as global as it is yeah. in Ready Player One, but I feel like. 
it's there. I kind of think we are there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So. And and that's not even talking about gaming. And I, I am not the one to talk about this because I'm not a gamer. And that's one of my issues, I think, with the film and the book. But um, there is a uh, there is an immersive element to some games. Like, you know, when friends of mine have gotten addicted to World of Warcraft or something mm-hmm. and just disappeared for like a month, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, um, totally. or longer. I don't know. But um, th- those those kind of worlds are already, you know, very much in the same kind of direction if not degree as the oasis i know that there's that i've had these experiences myself where uh i used to be into gaming when i was in my early teen years because i actually had time for it (laughs) and uh i remember playing the the game doom which is early oh yeah yeah it's like the first like well it's one of the very few i've played yeah there you go so see it was really fun and it was like you could play against other people uh, and we had to, like it's so crazy because it was so low tech. Like we had local area networks where you'd literally run a cable from like <laughs> yeah. your different computers to the different computers. And I remember we thinking had, like someone we had an IT room in college because none of us had laptops because it was too early for everyone to have laptops. Oh, so we, that's perfect. <laughs> so we yeah. had this room with computers to write your essays and stuff, and we would go in there and play Doom. That's, that's awesome. That is that is the preferred thing to do over essays. <laughs> Escapism yeah. over real world. Um, but one of the things that came up consistently was always like people would, I'd hear people talking about, well, you know, isn't this terrible that people are playing these games where you, you know, shoot other characters and like, you know, I'm like, yeah, but I mean, like, it's a giant glob of pixels. And I mean, like, it just seemed... <laughs> And then, and then later on in life, I, I've, I've been shocked by like, I'll watch some game that just came out and how realistic it oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> and the same arguments are still out there. And I'm sure that the, the teenagers, they're going like, no, man, it's just like a fake game. Yeah. And I'm, like, I'm sitting here looking at it going, I don't know, man, it looks real, <laughs> real to me. But, uh, and I don't know where that even takes you or, or but yeah, I think that's mm. very true, Helen, is that the games are getting more and more immersive all the time. Um, and, that's, and again, that's a great thing. It's not yeah. necessarily a bad thing, but it does create some issues. So, yeah. Well, that brings up the question, do you think the Oasis is a positive or negative thing? And mm. do you think Halliday regretted creating it? I think the answer to the second one, a question is yes. I think he did regret it, at least to a degree. Uh, he was aware of its sort of negative consequences and the dangers that it posed, I think, more than anyone else. Um, and I think aware that he needed it maybe as a as a sort of i think that the, the, the clear implication is that he suffers from some kind of disassociative autistic spectrum maybe condition something yeah. like that right mm-hmm. and uh and, and the implication being he may have needed it to sort of a, as a safe space to interact with people but he realized that maybe it isn't the best way to interact with people mm. um and so yeah so i think he maybe regretted it as to whether it's a negative overall it's harder to say it's certainly i agree with the sort of thesis of the film it would be negative if a titan of industry controls the whole thing and is advertising on 80 percent of your view field (laughs) you know uh of course i'm a huge lefty and that's why i'm saying that but uh but no i think you know that that having a monopolistic control of something that is so essential to people is is really dangerous um but uh yeah, I don't know. Would people have done better about fixing the world if there wasn't the Oasis to uh, escape into, mm. or is the Oasis the yeah. only way they can cope with the way the world is? You know, it's I don't I don't know enough to answer that. Yeah, yeah. and I Very feel true. like Halliday. 
I think he probably had the absolute best of intentions, right? Because you talked about mm. he has he's disassociative in some way, and I don't think he really had any way of understanding the level of exploitation that was going to occur in the Oasis after he created it. Mm. Yeah, like, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I think he thought, this is what I need. This is going to be wonderful for me. It'll be wonderful for everybody else, and everybody's going to be happy. Yeah. And it's like, no, yeah. dude, people are going to try to take it over. People are going to try to control it. They're going to use it for their own interests. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely didn't turn out the way he thought, I think. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> One of the things I found interesting that the question prompted for me, too, was um, the Oasis can, has the ability to, simulate an environment that solves the problem of scarcity and limited resources and it can even solve for social status right because like let's just say you're born into something that causes you to be of lower social stature for whatever reason that whatever context that means the oasis can solve for all of those things but the interesting thing i found was that it doesn't solve for them because so i would maybe wonder like do we bring that problem even to the real world like is mm. the problem of scarcity or is the problem of social status a big deal inherently in the real world or do we as human beings bring that into the world ourselves and do we cause that problem more so than the environment causes that problem because we're definitely causing it in the oasis <laughs> right like yeah. um yeah. it's weird it's a weird it's kind of a weird thing to, to think about i think i think it's probably i think it's probably true that human beings bring their uh, quest for status and hierarchy with them wherever we go. I think mm. that's, I think that's probably true. Uh, mm. And I think it's something that we're very slowly over the past few hundred years have begun to fight. And I do think it is something we're fighting. I mean, you know, um, poor people today are still better off than serfs for the most part. Right. Yeah. One would hope, you know, I think I think, you know, the, the Martin Luther King line about the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, I think is true. I think I think there is that hope that we are headed roughly in the right direction. We're maybe in a position at the moment where we're taking a few steps back, but the hope is then mm. we take a few more steps forward. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I think it's weird, isn't it? And, and how so I have a friend who. Uh, is, a, is very big in business and he, he looks at futurism a lot and tries to predict where things are going so he can invest in the right areas. Mm. And he, he's convinced that basically every job will be done by machines in the next 50 to 100 years, you know, from from truck drivers to lawyers. It'll be, mm. it'll be you know, AI capable. Um, so what do people do in that circumstance for status, for money, for uh self-worth you know what do you what do you build your life around and he had a theory that people were going to become sort of micro influencers that, that everyone would have their sort of um clique online they would find their hmm. thing and be an expert in that thing and that was that is the thing that would give them a sort of sense of self-worth and maybe an income whatever or maybe there'd be universal basic income it's a whole weird long conversation <laughs> but my point is he, he you know even if you assume that everyone in the real world has enough physical resources to live on there will still be that need for something more something to differentiate you as a person even if it's not specifically status mm. uh, in in terms of you know dominance over other people something to make yourself feel individual i think is something that we always want um and we always struggle with and I think we're probably always going to 
certainly mm. as far up as the Federation. You know, but by that point, they seem to have most things figured out. But yeah. we've got a bit of time until we get to Star Trek. That's <laughs> yeah, true. The AI will get to Star Trek before we do, I think. They yeah. will, yeah, they will, sadly, yeah. I, I it might say, be more A&M Banks, actually. By the time we get there, we'll have these giant minds that control society and yeah, look after all the hard stuff. You know? Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I got the impression, so I think that, uh, I don't know about your take on this, Helen, but I, I got the impression that the Halliday from the book was a somewhat different than the Halliday from the movie in regards to his impression of the Oasis. <laughs> because I got the sense that in the film, Halliday was still searching for something that had eluded him. Like he had not, he hadn't really come to any conclusions at the end of it almost just that like almost, I almost get more of a sense of hopelessness from him. Like, uh, it's just sort of hopeless no matter what happens. That's not necessarily the sense that I got from the book. I got the sense from the book that Halliday through his creation of the Oasis and through operating in the Oasis sort of learned about what was important in life and then was trying to convey that to all of the people competing in the contest. So it, it was a little different for me. I'm not sure if that's maybe more Mark Rylance's performance, which mm-hmm. by the way, I love Mark Rylance, yeah, but <laughs> I didn't quite think he fits in this role. It was real really? weird. Yeah, it was real oh, awkward for me for some reason. Um, I love him as an actor, but it, mm-hmm. I just maybe it was my impression of the character from the book and then seeing it on screen and done in this way. Maybe that was what was odd for me. So I would just say that in the book, it seems like the character has come to a conclusion of like, because um, there's more there's more time spent on his love lost, you know, because he loves yeah. uh, the wife of um, his co-founder. What was his co-founder? Ogden. Ogden, yeah. Ogden, Ogden. Morrow. Yeah, Ogden Morrow. That was a great name, by the way. Yeah, yeah it's a good name. Um, but I, I think that there's less time spent there, so we don't get as much into Halliday, in my opinion. So it's hard for me to tell where he's at the end of the film. Like, mm. what? I feel like he's got a sense of peace at the end of the film, similar, sort of related to what I was saying earlier about his intentions for creating the Oasis. Because yeah, he created the Oasis because he felt like he was an outsider to the rest of humanity, right? Like. Mm-hmm there was something that they all understood that he didn't understand. Mm. And I feel like at the end of this film, it's switched. I feel like uh, he has learned, he's like, I, maybe I was better off, <laughs> you know? He's like, <laughs> he sort of learned, I think I understand something about the simplicity mm. of life that now everybody else has confused. Uh, and that's kind so, of what he's trying to convey to the winner, to mm, Parzival. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I got more of, of this sense yeah, I got I, saw, I got think more of that sense from him, uh, I, and I think the thing about Mark Rylance is that he's, especially in this kind of role, he had it a little bit in Bridge of Spies as well. There's a sort of stillness to him at the heart of him that I think is that work quite well as a as a a knowing all knowing kind of guru. Yeah. Um, and so he fit he fit better with the character at the end of the film in that sense for me. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the film is it sort of does that whole. I can't remember the, if this bit from the book. It does that whole. You know, you're not you're not just a program. You're more than a program. So the the implication being he has essentially uploaded his mind to the oasis and become part of the oasis. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and that's interesting just to throw away there at the end because why then couldn't he just solve a whole lot of this stuff in other ways well okay so that was one of my questions is actually uh, um what do you think Halliday actually is at the end of the film so you think that he's pretty much just uh, uploaded his entire mind into the oasis 
that I mean, yeah, I don't know if I'm sort of I don't know how I'd technically explain it if yeah. I'd call him yeah. the singularity or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know. An I, angel? I think his, yeah. I, yeah, I but you know, maybe that's but maybe he is essentially that because maybe if you take a, a good human soul and you put them in a machine that has an incredible amount of processing power, maybe that's essentially what you end up with, at least as far as the world of the oasis goes. Um so I, I don't know what to call him, but I, I think he is the, the, certainly the impression I felt I was meant to have is that he is there as a as a full being, if you like. See, after hearing way. that, I yeah. feel like Jay and I need to go back and revisit an old episode. So we did an episode a while back on Blade Runner. Um, right. And we talked with our guest, Michael Gordon, a lot about could AI be a real thing? Like, could we actually have AI right. as right. intelligent as humans? Mm. And we sort of landed on no, like we we can we can never quite get there because I forget some of the things we talked well, about. Well, we were well we were done, didn't say that they couldn't be as intelligent. No, we we weren't even saying that because they they actually do have complex reasoning. We were saying that they would never be able to experience emotion. That yes, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was the real uh, okay. like the real big component of it. But what if this is the way through that, like uploading Holiday into the Oasis? Not, I mean, yeah. I, I'm still not saying we can do that in real life, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, what if that? <laughs> What if that's the bridge, you know? Yeah, I mean, this the, the, the interesting thing about this book and, and these ideas, like, these are old sci-fi ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. These, these have been, like, certainly since, well, many of them since the birth of cyberpunk, some of them going a lot further back to Asimov and Clark and the rest. Um, there has been this fascination of what is our relationship with machines we haven't invented yet, which is, which is kind of a weird thing as a society to be preoccupied with. Yeah. But um, but we're, we're really concerned about, okay, but... Yes, but when we have robots, what will the rules governing their behavior be? You know, <laughs> and, um, and it's similar to this. I, I feel like this has been a, a subject of continuing fascination for people. Yes, but when we have a, AI, will we be able to upload our brains to the cloud? Um, you know, and, and it, it is a source of fascination to me as well. What do you do if you have a human capacity for, you know, intuition and leaps of faith and not in the god sense necessarily but just generally mm-hmm. and emotion um and empathy and you put that in with the processing power of a computer because if, uh, somebody was telling me the other night by the time we get to ai um and, and get to a machine that is capable of thinking as fast as uh, capable of thinking like a human does machine thinking is about twenty-two thousand times as fast as us yeah so as soon as we get to that point then it accelerates like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't know what will happen and we have no way of understanding what will happen. Which is, of course, another book that uh, Steven Spielberg was almost going to adapt, Robopocalypse. Mm-hmm. Oh. Which is kind that. of a wannabe World War Z, if I'm honest. But, mm. it's, uh, it, but th- that element of things, like the robot sort of takeover, is, uh, is qu- quite well thought out, I thought. Hmm. I I actually had the same interpretation. I have three different potential interpretations of how you could take that question, the Halliday question at the okay. end. Ooh. And by the way, I do believe that uh, that is one of them Force Ghost. No, <laughs> <laughs> it should be. That's my fourth one okay. now. Just <laughs> asking. Um, I will say that if there is anybody who has like already uploaded their consciousness to this, you know, this brain, and that will all be part of. Uh, that person's hive mind. It's probably Elon Musk at this point. <laughs> God probably, forbid. Yeah, 
who knows where that's going to be. But anyways, so I do think that, yeah, yeah, uh, Helen's uh, interpretation is the first one that I came up with as well. Just just saying that Halliday managed, I'm calling it download his consciousness into mm -hmm. the Oasis. Sure. yeah. And I'm calling it that because we don't really know what the consciousness is still. So the interesting thing about the consciousness and AI is that obviously the consciousness is some form of energy in the way that your brain works and could a computer predict the way that your brain was going to work every single time and then upload it well that's where helen's question of leaps of faith is a really fascinating one because human beings do tend to have ruts in their brains where they will interact the same way with the world over time however we also seem to have, despite some of the thinkers out there and what they say, they also seem to have some form of free will where we could change that thinking. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that means in terms of can you take the consciousness? Is the brain more? I guess the question is, is the brain more than a series of ones and zeros making decisions? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but that would ha you'd have to go down that level of um, mm. concept to accept this as what actually happened with Halliday, <laughs> which, you know, who knows? Yeah, and that is big philosophical concepts right there. That oh, is. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Soul levels, yeah. Yeah. So I thought that that makes the message of the movie a lot stranger than the message of the book. Because I, I got the sense that the message of the, of the film was it's worth it to engage in the real world. Yeah, but it's weird for the guy who created the Oasis to be like, "Oh well, I'm so in love with the Oasis that I'm uploading my consciousness to it." Well, but there's a, I mean, there's a sense of tragedy there because there was a point when he realized his time in the real world was coming to an end. Yeah, sure, he sure, knew sure. He was going to die. So good point. So it's like, well, I, what alternative do I have? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get that. Um, and there's there's a weird part of that too where in the book there's like, well, in the movie too, there's the the off button. Right. So like, it's kind of like, Hey, you can kill me if you want to. Cause my consciousness is now in here, but like, it's just weird. It's an odd thing to do. Right. Yeah. Like, by the way, don't shut it down. Cause I'm, I'm in here. <laughs> you know? Um, anyway, so, so I think that that's interesting, but I think it would be, it's, it's it convolutes the message of the movie perhaps for me a little bit. Uh, maybe I'm just not thinking about it correctly. So I did come up with two other interpretations though. The second one is that, um, Halliday is actually referring to w his character in the Oasis as what people came to know him as and the embodiment of what people's perceptions were, not the real him. So he's basically saying like, no, 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 I died. This is just all your perception of who I was. Mm. Um, you've researched me a billion times. You know every decision that I've ever made. You have all the things that you can go back and look in the room that I grew up in and see all the conversations that I ever had, but you really didn't know the real me and that person died. Um, mm. I like that interpretation personally, just because I think it actually falls in alignment with his character and falls in alignment with what the story is trying to teach. Like we need to know these people in the real world. Like that's kind of the embodiment of it, right? Like we don't know Artemis until we know her in the Oasis and in the real world. Mm -hmm. We don't know Wade until we know him in the Oasis and in the real world. And I think what Halliday could be saying here is nobody knew me. Hmm. Nobody took he, the I time think, to know. Th what if he I didn't he, even exist? I think he is saying that to an extent. Yeah. I mean, maybe Ogden being the possible somewhat exception, but I, th I think that's something he's saying in any case. Whatever, whatever we're looking at at the end. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. End. yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, right. The conspiracy theory answer to that is: What if he didn't even exist? 
Did he never existed? What if Halliday never existed in the real oh. world? And this is all now. Um, now this I'm is just, all behind the mind of Ogden Morrow. I'm just done with this podcast now. <laughs> oh, you are blowing this thing wide open. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, the other, the other, the only other possibility that I could come up with, besides Force Ghost, which I think is amazing, <laughs> sure. um, is that I'm wondering if uh, what he's actually referring to, and this would this would actually lead towards a sequel more is that someone else took on the role of Halliday as if someone else took on the role of Batman. So it's oh. kind of like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm Halliday oh. now, but the real Halliday is a different guy, and he's dead now. I'm a different Halliday. Um, but, of course, that's like, again, <laughs> this is pretty – putting a lot of interpretation <laughs> on one line of the movie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. Where the, the real answer is probably, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want you to know. <laughs> we don't want you to know. <laughs> that's the whole point. Yeah. We want you to do exactly Spielberg what you're doing Spielberg like, now. why did you guys take 15 minutes on a podcast to talk about that? <laughs> that is not maybe, what I'm going for. Maybe it's like that, uh, oh goodness, I've forgotten the name of the film. Uh, classic noir film, Humphrey Bogart, uh, Raymond Chandler. Mm. Uh, uh, Maltese anyway. Falcon? Or, Maltese Falcon. Yeah. I think it was a Maltese Falcon. Let's say it is anyway. And if I'm wrong on the details of the plot, you'll know and you'll be able to correct me. Okay. So the, the famous story us goes for that, that kind of thing all the time. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> the story goes that he goes and asks the director, "Hey, who killed the butler?" And the director goes, "I don't know. Go ask the screenwriter." And the screenwriter says, "I don't know. Go ask Raymond Chandler." And he goes and asks <laughs> Raymond Chandler who killed the butler, and and Raymond Chandler's like, "I don't know. It just felt like it would happen." Uh, and, <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit similar. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, it could be. It could, and and by the way, as a writer, this kind of stuff all the time happens. Where you're like, I don't know. I just put it in there, and then people are like, No, it must mean something. I'm like, Yeah, I try to have everything mean something, but sometimes I just screw it up. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay. One thing I wanted to touch on is this idea of the loyalty center. Mm. So it's essentially a prison. Right. I mean, yeah. more or less, it's it's not law enforcement, but it's run by this this greedy corporation, IOI, and they call it the loyalty center. So I'm curious how you guys think about that. How you think what that says about uh, Nolan Sorrento's motivation? Mm. I mean, it, yeah, his his, his um, so the loyalty center is um, essentially a debtor's prison, I guess, which is certainly right. something we had here in the UK in the 19th century. Charles Dickens' dad famously was in debtor's prison for some time because um, he owed money, um, and 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 it does feel like the kind of thing that's coming back because you get these big corporations essentially working with government to enforce their needs on people. Um, so it doesn't feel like a big leap again. But in terms of motivation for wanting to control the ISIS, I think this is something that the film and Ben Mendelsohn did really well, um, which is to show that it is a matter of life or death for this corporation to mm. have the control and to, to, to certainly, at the very least, ensure that the Oasis doesn't change, but really, ideally, to get control of it and be able to um, monopolize it themselves. Um, but but it's life or death really for them, and and I think that the film does quite well at kind of conveying that. Um, weirdly, I mean the stakes are probably higher for them than they are for Parzival and the rest. Ah, uh, that's a really good mm. point. Yeah, I mean the IOI is is it's ca capitalism gone completely wrong, right? <laughs> like it's like the embodiment of corporate greed, um, and it's all pers personified through Sorrento, which I think mm. which I think is actually kind of cool because it's always super tropey when it's like well there's this one corporation and it's super greedy it's like well 
the corporation doesn't make its own decisions unless it is controlled by like some sort of artificial intelligence. There's people in there that are doing those things collectively. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of cool that they embody it in Sorrento. Um, I think that we're even seeing that we're seeing a version of it now uh, here in the States with net neutrality. So I'm kind of wondering mm -hmm. how that's going to work out. Um, yeah. But there is this in, in, inherent thing in people that like when, when people have a desire for something, they will exploit one another to get it, whether it's power or money or I mean, whatever it is. Uh, IOI tends to be the embodiment of that. They want their money. They want their power and they're going to exploit people to get it. Um, and it's, you know, what's interesting is they, they, as, as if they were to control it, they, people become the machines from the matrix at that point. Right. I mean, they're just going to gobble up other yeah. people and just use them to exploit whatever they can. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I mean, again, just, we were talking before we started about, uh, the state of media and the internet and so on. Mm. And, and I think it, you're right. It absolutely does come back to, um, the current state of affairs again. Um, in that everybody's scrambling for our attention and you know like just a little thing like adverts are getting incredibly intrusive online mm. and um since these new eu laws came in about data protection we keep getting all these um rather pleading messages from websites going oh but if you don't if you don't let us put cookies on your machine then then we won't be able to personalize the ads and you won't get ads <laughs> that are personal to you it's like i don't want ads that are personal to me <laughs> why would i want that yeah, exactly. why would that be a benefit to me yeah. Um, but there's genuinely this sort of like assumption that your interests and their interests are aligned and fundamentally they're not always. Mm. Um, so yeah, you're right. They, we are, you know, they are the cogs in the machine and we're kind of at risk of becoming the same thing. I wonder what it is about humanity. Like, like I, I encounter so many people now cause it is so easy, right? To go watch a YouTube video. It's so easy to, um, you know, listen to a podcast, whatever it is. Uh, but I, when I run into people more often than not, they are craving personal connections far more than they are the media. And yet mm. we still keep investing so much in the media. I mean, this is someone who's doing a podcast, so <laughs> you know, maybe turn it off for a second and go talk to a friend of yours, but, but at the same time, discuss you know, amongst yourself. Yeah. Um, I just think it's really interesting. Like there seems to be a pretty intense craving for connection. And yet mm -hmm. we're in some ways more connected than we've ever been. Um, it, it's a different kind of connection though. And yeah. it's a different level maybe of connection. But I think also the, the problem is, uh, well, I mean, people talk about this in relation to internet dating, but you know, the problem is kind of this illusion that everything is at your fingertips. And then how do you possibly decide on one thing? Mm. How do you possibly decide on one person on this dating website? Cause you know, okay, yes, you like the look of them and yes, they seem to meet your basic criteria, but there is that one thing in their profile where they've got like a, an apostrophe in the wrong place and come on does that mean they're an idiot <laughs> i'm not saying i've ever thought that um someone i know did no but like it's you know the but genuinely you you find yourself like looking at people's profiles and going well there's one item here that i don't approve of therefore i'm gonna i'm gonna swipe and maybe if you met them in a bar and met them in real life you know that'd be it you'd be walking down the aisle by saturday yeah yeah, it's interesting, right? Like it does, it, it is, we were talking about this at the beginning, like what's the easy thing to do and what's the more difficult thing to do? And oftentimes the more difficult thing to do is actually more meaningful you, to you in the long run. Yeah, well, the, the real personal connection comes with a risk, right? Yeah. Like 
you could be, you could be rejected. That person could not be what you want them to be. Yeah. You may not behave the want the way you want to behave yeah. in those instances. Whereas theoretically, you can control things online. True. Which is also not yeah. true. You can be rejected right. just as harshly online as you can in, yeah. in person. And by a lot more people yeah. in a much shorter space of time. Right. That's true. That's true. That's a really good point. I think that there's, there's, a, there's a risk to both of them maybe, but you, can, you think that you can control the one, whereas with the other one, you realize that you're not in complete control of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and then by what the way, you're leaving out of it too is you're leaving out input from other people yeah like yeah you can maybe you have technically a little bit less control over a real one-to-one relationship yeah but you're going to get influence from somebody else you're going to get more information to help you live your life well you're going to get the emotional connection that you might not otherwise get right exactly you can can have and you're going to get somebody else's insight you're going to get input yeah the internet is all output and even comments and stuff like that on the internet it seems to me it's very rarely like, oh, wow, that's really helpful to me. That's going to help me live my life. It's yeah. usually just like, I like that. I don't like that. Yeah. You're stupid. You suck. <laughs> it's like, you know. Right. It's like, th- like you get a little bit of a dopamine hit, but you don't get the real true emotional connection that you need. Right. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Hmm. I don't, know how, we, I don't know how we got to that from loyalty centers, but, but I like it. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um. That does bring up another question, though, that I did not send to you guys ahead of time. Is um, I was thinking about this film. I was thinking about The Matrix and other movies like this where they sort of pull the veil over humanity's eyes, right? And there's oh, yeah. the real world and there's this artificial world. Yeah. I feel like just like in The Matrix, in this movie, for me, the real world story-wise suffers a bit. I don't feel like there's enough of it there. Uh. How do you guys feel about that? Do you feel like there's an absence there? Hmm. Yeah, I do actually. And I think uh, it's partly because, I mean, for example, when the bomb goes off in his complex, there's no real reaction from him. There's no moment of emotion, particularly. There's no sense of him being tied to that. And there are people there that he has relationships with. They may be imperfect relationships, but there are relationships there. So I feel like that was an unusual emotional misstep from Spielberg, actually. I thought that was a a bit of a a problem. Um, And then, yeah, it just... I think maybe we needed to see more of it. We needed a little bit more of that and a little bit less of the, hey, look at my cool new Rubik's Cube, you know. Yeah. Um, nothing against Rubik's Cubes, wonderful <laughs> toys. But, yeah, I think I feel I feel like you're right. I think there could have been just a bit more, just to give us a bit more context and a bit more um, uh, stakes, physical stakes. But then, then again, maybe it's a deliberate choice to emphasize how important the, the Oasis is and how much it, you know, interlinks with the real world. It could be. It, I, it also sort of felt to me that when the, when the idea of the resistance came in, like when we meet who Artemis is in real life mm-hmm. and stuff like that, that sort of seemed like out of left field to me. It's like, oh, well, you didn't really build the build world in a way yeah. that made me feel like that makes sense to exist mm. you know yeah yeah very very true i will say i think the book handles it a tad bit better than yeah. the film does um but not not in a real great way um i think it's really difficult i've noticed this in in lots of different stories is that when you're dealing with this kind of two worlds scenario because I mean, Harry Potter does it and does it very well, but uh, a lot, a lot of books do it. Like they're the um, Hunger Games series. Mm-hmm. I know that, like for example, the first two Hunger Games books, which I read, all dealt with 
how do you solve this game, right? Because you have to mm -hmm. beat the game. Right. And then the third one moves completely into real life. It's similar in some regards to how the Matrix trilogy worked, right? Where yeah. all of a sudden we were yeah. spending way more time in the real world than we were in the games. Except in the Matrix, it was all underground. And so we didn't get a sense of what the world we're familiar with looked right, like. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know? True, that's a good point. But what's interesting about it is that it's really hard to retain the audience when you jump to to either one. Yeah. Because like if they get bought into the game, like in the Hunger Games, I stopped mm. reading halfway through the third book because I'm like, I don't care about this anymore. Um, <laughs> and that's not like uh, maybe maybe I, you know that's just my own perspective on it. But it's so weird because I, very rarely can I say that I have read the books before seeing the movie. Yeah. <laughs> very rarely can I say that I have read the books. At all, <laughs> but in the case of the Hunger Games, I read all of those books before all the oh, movies really? came out. Yeah. I don't know why, yeah. but I did, and I actually like the last one the best. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, interesting. Wow. I know I'm I in have the to minority. Say, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're. I'm not. I'm afraid I can't be with you on that. I, my my problem with the the final Hunger Games book actually is that it. Uh, well, two problems. First of all, it tried to mimic the game formula too closely with mm. all those booby traps sure and and i find that it's like no dude at this point i wanted something else i wanted it to feel different and then my my other major problem with it was the death of her sister because that's the it's mm. the whole point that's yes. the whole point <laughs> yeah she needed yeah. to survive <laughs> which did i can't did the movies correct that i can't remember no no they did, they did it too not. oh they yeah. did it too and i i get oh look war is senseless and meaningless and people die i get that but it, dramatically, I was just like, no. Yeah, I remember reading that and thinking, wait, what the hell? Yeah, and, yeah. And my wife was sort of reading the books behind me. And, oh, gosh. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's something that happened that I don't want to ruin for you, but I want to know if they're going to do it in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just think it can be – so to, to that point, though, I think it can be very difficult to capture both worlds – really well to the point where you can go back and forth between them and they're yeah. and mm. they're both meaningful um that's a lot of work to get done and in one movie i think it'd be almost impossible mm. you know if you built it I, up I over multiple maybe i didn't think this one did it too badly in that final sort of cutting back and forth between the two battles um obviously one was much more visually dazzling mm. um yeah but i i thought at least there was tension in both worlds and there were characters active in both worlds you know you had enough at that point of the resistance in the real world i guess just about to sort of look at these people that um, was i mean it's well, not yeah, yeah it's it's not as good as like infinity war did it much better obviously but uh, or or something like um the matrix even mm -hmm. um but it, it's not it's not my biggest problem with this film yeah yeah well i think we are just about wrapping up here is there anything else <laughs> you guys just have to get off your chest about Ready Player One that you've been dying to say that I haven't set you up for yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what my I'll tell you what my issue with this is. I feel like it's designed to speak to a very specific person, and mm. I've worked with some of those people, so I know exactly who who it's speaking to. But I'm not it, and it makes almost no concession to me. Mm. Uh, and, and not everything has to be about me. I'm, I'm I do realize that, uh, although some people have accused me of not. Um, but <laughs> But I think um, it, it makes it limited and a little bit stunted, especially the book. And I think this is, as I say, the, the film, I think, loosened it up and opened it out a little bit. But the book is so concerned with hitting every single favored thing in his childhood that 
I like and so many of them I don't care about because yes I absolutely love Back to the Future and the Goonies and you know war games but I could not care less about any of those arcade games Mm. and so it, it just left me behind so often and every time I'd sort of sink back in and get back into it it would throw me something else that I just profoundly didn't care about and it would just kind of lose me again. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of my big thing with it. it. Not just the sense of, oh, this isn't something I know about, this isn't something I have background knowledge on, more in the sense of this is actively not for me. This is actively telling me uh, it's not for me. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, in the same way that, because it's the kind of geekdom uh, and this is this runs right through Wade's character and, and everyone really in the book uh, and in the film. It's not about loving the thing. It's about knowing every detail of the thing. It's about the only kind of true fandom mm. being this kind of obnoxious show off knowledge of every single detail. Mm. Um, and that's not my way of approaching things. Even the stuff that I love and have seen a million times and can quote more or less backwards. Um, and I, I like I have a lot of knowledge, but I don't I don't want to recite the whole of war games, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't understand the person who would really mm. on some level. Mm. Um, so I find it quite alienating, I think, in that sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's the tension of do you universalize it or do you do fan service? Right. Which yeah. I think if we go back and look at Marvel, I feel like for the most part, they are doing a beautiful job of universalizing things. Mm. Yeah, and I think something like the J.J. Abrams first Star Trek did that brilliantly oh, because yeah. it, it actually gave the fans something that they could sink their teeth into, but was also an entry way for for non fans. And I think the film—that's why I say the film is better than the book here because the film does have a few more ways in and a few more. Uh, it's not quite as concerned with oh well I'll think you're fine that he actually did that on October sixteenth, not October fifteenth. <laughs> you know, it ha- it doesn't have any of that really aggressive show-offy trivia that the book does um so that's one of the reasons i like the film a lot but a lot more than the book although um, that one scene about the breakfast club when he was talking to sorrento oh i was a little yeah. on the nose He's oh like, yeah, yeah yeah a little bit <laughs> <laughs> well i guess i mean that's such a part of his character though that maybe you you can't really lose that yeah. you know it, i suppose it has to be there yeah i think it's interesting because um, I like the book a lot more than the movie, but I don't fit the category either. Like I'm familiar with all of these things, but I, I feel the same way, Helen. Like I don't, I'm I like stories, and I, I'm compelled mm. by the stories. I'm not compelled by the the minutia of detail in them. Like that doesn't really matter to me yeah. as much, you know. Yeah, Unless the well detail put. matters to the story, then I'm like, okay, great. Um, but the one thing, the one thing I found more fun about the book than the movie is. Uh, now this is gonna sound crazy, but um, I'm a really big fan of escape rooms these days. Oh yeah, all oh, right. I just think escape rooms are super fun. I love like interacting with them and stuff. Um, and the book felt like more of an escape room. It felt like it was like mm. logically unlocking puzzles that would yeah. get you to the next okay. stage. And, and and in the film, it kind of they don't have enough time to go through all mm. of the puzzles that the book goes through. And so it wasn't so much like that he was able to recite war games from beginning to end but how he got to figuring out how to recite war games from beginning to end was more interesting to me in the book than it was in you know because in the movie you can't show the characters thoughts 
And like you know, he'll spend like five yeah. pages of a book thinking about what this could be. Where in the movie, he just looks at the camera and goes, "Oh, it's war games." And you're like, <laughs> uh, "How did you get there?" You know. Yeah. Um, and I think they did a little better job in the book of like playing out. So I, I you know, the details didn't matter to me as much. There's, there's a couple of things in the book where it is the third level of the fourth dungeon of Zork. You know, and you're like, I have no clue yeah. where that is or yeah. what that looks like. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But at least the puzzling of getting to him figuring that out, I felt like was a little bit more robust than it was in the film. Yeah, that's fair. And you're right. That's a that's a function of time. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, because p- problem solving on film is always quite difficult unless you're. Yeah. Well, I mean, he made Indiana Jones, though, who did a lot of puzzling. That's true. So, it's true. I don't know. You can do it well. Um, I mean, you can do it well. I, I think yeah. like, I was just finished the new Jack Ryan series. Um, oh, me too. Yeah, and I really enjoyed no it. No, 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 no spoilers. No spoilers. Like no, spoilers. no, no, you're good. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. But uh, one thing I will say is there were several times where I'm like, wait, you're just going to say that that's what's happening? And like you come up with a really advanced theory in yeah. about 30 seconds. Um, but I think you can do it in a fun way, and it, you just go mm-hmm. with it because you're along, with the, along for the ride. And then you can do it in a way that's like, okay, well, that's not fun anymore because that's just way out of left field. And when you're dealing with geek material – and they don't mm. give you all of the whys, and you're not in on the whys, then it seems yeah. really like, okay, you just went way over my head. Like, I have no clue what you're doing. Yeah, I think I think that's the danger. But I think, I guess, maybe that's the reason that they changed, you know, the second task to, to The Shining, which was pretty visually cool. And you kind of felt like that was, a, that was Spielberg having, having quite a lot of fun. I think with Absolutely. his old mates, with his old mates work. The, the one thing I did really miss was actually the idea that the first task is hidden on the school planet. Oh yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Because I really liked the idea that it was, you know, kids at an impoverished school who had the best chance of solving this entire puzzle. I thought that was a really lovely idea on Halliday's part. And so I felt like it was a shame that you, you kind of lost that, but you know, so be it. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I also think that one of the things about the book that's a little bit more interesting than the movie is I think you get a little better perspective for the brute force of the IOI versus the like logical thinking of the of the individual gunters. Because all of the gunters who are the puzzle solvers trying to figure out Halliday's puzzles, they have to go about it in a way that they're thinking about it as well as they possibly can like the 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 thought process now to helen's point they get way too geeky with it where you just don't can't follow what they're doing but where ioi will just show up and be like okay well we're just gonna dig this whole planet up looking for a gate that like you would have had to find otherwise you know what i mean yeah because you wouldn't have the resources that they have so I, i do like that in the book too well i think we've done it i think yeah i think we've unpacked this movie very well um helen thank you so much for joining us again today absolute pleasure thank you yeah give everybody a quick reminder again where they can find you online where they can find empire so yeah it's empireonline.com and uh, it is on sale in barnes and noble and uh our uh, i'm on helen l o'hara at twitter there you go. awesome Basically. awesome i yeah. wish i wish barnes and noble did a better job of of stocking it though i have to say oh yeah because <laughs> well, i go looking for it and i'm i'm at the point now i think i'm just going to subscribe because it's just too hard to find it sometimes but <laughs> and it is about four weeks behind sometimes yeah. so you're just kind of looking at it going are this on the cover really Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> awesome yeah. well thanks again so much for joining us pleasure really nice to talk to you well that's it for today's show special thanks to helen o'hara for joining us today 
Be sure and go check out what she's doing over at Empire. Obviously, we love Empire Magazine. We love the Empire Podcast. And we've been blessed to have some conversations with those guys. So head on over there and check it out. Coming up next week on the Story Geeks podcast, as we said before, we will be diving into the concept of anti-heroes, uh, which is inspired by Venom. So if you haven't seen Venom yet, head on out and do that. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of this stuff. Yeah, and be sure to connect with us in the Story Geeks Facebook group, like I mentioned earlier. Love to hear your thoughts on Ready Player One or any of the stuff that we've been talking about. So head over to the Story Geeks Facebook group, posts, or respond to one of our posts that we've put up there. And also, don't forget the Aftercast. We're going to be talking about human consciousness and also a little bit about our favorite virtual worlds. That's right. And if you enjoy all this stuff or anything else that we do on the Story Geeks podcast, please share it with a friend. Let somebody know about it. Help us spread the word. And um, you can find all the stuff that we've talked about today in the show notes. Thanks for listening in. And as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories. And always seek the truth.